like to invite you to join me in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 13. Uh, to let you know, next week we will uh, be returning to John's gospel, picking up where we left off last fall with John chapter 17. But in time since then, we have... Uh, We've been spending time in this sermon series exploring the glories of heaven that await those who by grace are in Christ Jesus. We've explored the, the hope and the joy of our future glory. But that future, as we see today in 1 Peter chapter 1, is the hope that is certain. And it is certain because it rests not on us. It rests on Christ alone. To prepare to turn to this text, I want to ask you to join me in prayer. Our Father, I ask for the blessing of the presence of your Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, to point us to all truth, to to root us on all truth, to give us joy and anticipation of our future hope of glory with Him. For in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Friends, this is the inerrant and infallible Word of God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories, it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. And the things that, you, that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Author and 
counselor Ed Welch has written a book, though not recently. It's a rather old book, actually, but it's one I recommend to you. The title of this book is When People Are Big and God is Small. Now, the book speaks to a struggle that many of us have in our lives. It's the, the struggle with the fear of man. Now, but I put this book before you not specifically because it deals with the fear of man, but because the title is so profound. We know that there is something deeply wrong when other people have grown bigger in our sight than the Lord our God. We could add a subtitle to Peter's first epistle. When suffering is big, and God is small. You see, Peter is writing this letter, this epistle to the persecuted church, and he's writing to encourage them that though they are suffering trials and tribulations at the hand of an oppressive government, their God is bigger than the suffering that they are experiencing. His mercy is bigger. His power is bigger. And His plan for their future hope and glory is bigger than anything that they are experiencing in the moment. Now all of this bigness that Peter writes about can be squeezed into one four-letter word, hope. He's writing a message of hope to the persecuted church calling them and us to wait in hope. And we too find ourselves struggling in the now. We're subject to the storylines that we tend to embrace, storylines that reinforce the struggle. And so, set against those storylines, Peter offers another one at the very beginning of this text storyline of doxology. He opens. Verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's doxology, it's praise, it's, it's worship. And that worship is meant to make God bigger in our eyes. It's meant to make our suffering smaller. And this doxology is not merely wishful thinking, happy thinking. It is chock full of meaty content that opens as Peter reminds us that by God's mercy, Christians are born again. Now, two quick preliminary thoughts about this new birth before we get into the implications of that new birth in our lives. And the first is this, God causes it. Remember, this is a big God passage because we worship a big God. And Peter makes it very clear that our God is the one who causes us to be born again. But second, this new birth is a radical transformation of our entire nature. New birth is not an action we take. It's not an aisle we walk. It's not a formulaic prayer we pray. 
It is a work of regeneration whereby our great God changes everything in our lives and about our nature. It is a work of transformation that he begins and he sees through and that will take an entire lifetime and will culminate in glory. God initiates it. God completes it. And the text then points us to the implications of this new birth. The first is this, that we're born again to a living hope. I want to offer for you a, a crucial distinction. This hope is not a wish. It is a certainty. When we bring out the birthday cake with the candles on top, and we close our eyes and we make a wish. There is a mathematical formula that, that, that takes shape in our mind. The first input in that formula is the input of, of probability. We begin to assign some probability as to whether or not this wish will come true. The other input in this equation is, is the degree to which we desire that wish. Those two inputs are multiplied together. How likely we think it is to come about and how much we desire it. And the output of that equation is, guess what? Anxiety. We live anxious lives marked by anxiety over what we wish will happen. But the gospel brings a twofold good news. The glory that awaits us is greater than anything that we could ask or imagine. The glory is greater than anything we could wish for. And secondly, for those who are in Christ, the probability is 100%. Now that certainty... It's meant to impact the now. It is meant to impact the anxiety that marks our days. This tells us that a waiting hope is a living hope. It is the hope that we are born into. The text also tells us that, that we are born into an inheritance. Anna and I have been watching Downton Abbey. My boys are disappointed in me. They'll get over it. With Downton Abbey, at various times, no spoiler alert here, but there are various characters that, that tend to receive unexpected inheritance. Inheritance tends to be part of the storyline of the whole show. And invariably, when when they get word of this unexpected inheritance, it tends to change everything for that character and the characters around them. Just as it would you and I. You and I might not receive news of that unexpected inheritance through the telegram that they receive on the show. But imagine for a moment that you receive word, however you receive word, of an unexpected inheritance. I suspect that that news 
would carry you through in the waiting, regardless of how long that waiting would take. Here's the good news. Our inheritance is not unexpected. It is proclaimed for the world to hear. So what is this inheritance? This inheritance that, oh, by the way, is guaranteed. Well, in the Old Testament, inheritance language is used to describe the promised land. The inheritance that the Israelites are to receive as they cross the Jordan River and and take hold of this land that God has promised them. But as the storyline of Scripture progresses, we begin to see that this promise of the promised land points us to a greater inheritance, one that awaits us in heaven, one that is imperishable. It won't lose value with the the rising and falling of the stock market. It is one that that is undefiled. It will not be tarnished by scandal. And it is unfading. Its glory will not diminish. Springtime seems to be coming early this year. We're seeing signs of it in our yard. We have in the flower bed in our yard several azalea bushes. And I always look forward to the springtime when when those azaleas burst into color. It is like they're lit on flame and it lasts for about a week. And then it quickly fades away. Our inheritance will not quickly fade away. Our inheritance is eternal and its glory is eternal. Its glory is what we have been pointing to in the entirety of this sermon series. And we're going to talk more in the end, about what this inheritance is. But for now, for just a moment, I want to point something out from this text. Now, you know that an inheritance requires death. Hebrews chapter 9 speaks to that, that an inheritance requires the death of a testator, the one who makes the will. And upon that death, there is a transfer of the inheritance. Now, Peter is not denying that requirement of death, but he opens up a greater complementary truth. You see, for Peter, this inheritance is not rooted in death. It is rooted in life. It is founded on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so he seems to draw on a truth that Paul writes about in Romans 6.5, where if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united in him, with him in a resurrection like his. New life that we have been given. This inheritance that we have been given is a living hope. And so in Christ, we wait. Because we're born again to this living hope. And yet in the waiting, Christians can take comfort. Knowing that by God's power, we are guarded through faith. Who said that... Our hope is a 100% fail-safe guarantee. And yet it still points us to a future reality. It points us to a future 
certainty. And so the word is reminding us here in this passage that we, in Christ, are guarded through faith. Now remember we've said this is a big God passage because guess what? We have a big God. And by His power, we are guarded through faith. A faith that is a deep abiding trust in Jesus. But that faith is given to us by God and it is kept by God. And there are living implications for that faith. And the first is this. It is a faith that is refined. Remember, Peter is writing to the persecuted church. A church that is suffering brutal persecution at the hands of the Roman emperor. And we too... In our day and age, suffer persecution, it looks different than it did then. But it's there. But we also suffer various trials, various tribulations in this life, in our fallen state. And many of us, as we experience those trials, we want to ask what we think is a simple question. Where is Jesus? Where's Jesus in my struggles? Where's Jesus in my pain? The truth of this passage and the truth of all of Scripture is that Jesus is with us. He's with us in the struggle. He's with us in the trials. And through the trials, the truth is we experience our union in Christ more fully. Our trials are an opportunity for us to enter into that union and experience His suffering. We're closer to Christ in that suffering. Strengthened through it. The word speaks of this strengthening, this refining. By describing the process by which precious metals are refined or purified. That's a process of purification by fire. Where those precious metals are are melted and the, and the impurities are separated from them so that that precious metal might, might be more glorious. I don't know about you, but I'd often like to think of guarded as meaning protected from the hard. That's the end to which we often pray. But here... Kept means he keeps us in the midst of the hard things. Jesus is promising to promising to be with us in the process of refining. Now, as he says that, he doesn't deny the difficulty of the trials. He speaks of being grieved. Trials, suffering, they hurt. They hurt and there's pain associated with it. Suffering is real and it will continue. When the text in verse 6 speaks of a little while, it's speaking of the entirety of the Christian life. And yet, the entirety of the Christian life in this life is but an instant. In the context of eternity and glory with Jesus. And so... Our suffering is not without meaning. 
The Lord is growing us. He is keeping us. That through this suffering, we might more fully reflect His glory. Here at Christ Church, we, we lay out core values. One of those core values is the core value of hope. We talk about what we mean by that when we say that we rest in God's promise. That His children will share in His glory expectantly engaging others while steadfastly enduring the trials of life. We're acknowledging that hope is not a wish, it's a certainty, and that our God has us throughout the process, a process that is called sanctification, a process of growing in Christ-likeness. And that process has an endpoint called glory, and that glory is a certainty. When we speak of hope, we're clinging to the reality of our sanctification, mine and yours. And that shapes the hopefulness with which we interact with one another. Knowing that as we interact today, we're interacting with one in their future glory. That must impact our lives, our relationships, our expectancy, so that we endure with hope. But the text also makes clear that our faith, though marked by refining, is also marked by rejoicing. On one hand, verses 8 and 9 tell us that 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 future glory, that future joy, shapes our current joy. So is your faith a joy-filled faith? If not, why not? Could it be that our experiences here in this life have grown bigger in our sight than our God? I wrestle with this question often. I invite you to wrestle with me. But I also invite you to join me because perhaps verses 10 through 12 can can help. Our God is big and so is his love for his children. Verses 10 through 12 tell us that God has given all of the scriptures to point you to the hope that you have in Jesus. To point you to the salvation that is yours In Christ. These verses tell us that the prophets of old were not serving themselves. That they were serving us. By searching the word. By searching the revelation of the spirit. For the time and person that was to come. But we live on this side of the cross. On this side of the resurrection. The prophets were serving us as they point us to Jesus Christ. Which means that Christians today have the blessing of living in a time where the gospel message can be proclaimed with clarity. So what is that gospel message? It's this. Jesus saves sinners. That Jesus reconciles sinners. That Jesus transforms sinners. Sinners, and praise be to God, Jesus keeps sinners. Friends, hear this good news and receive it by faith alone. Receive it with joy. That is the call of 
verses 3 through 12. As Peter points us to the hope we have in Jesus Christ, the certainty of it and the joy that it brings. But then in verse 13, he calls us to live now in light of faith. Verse 13, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you with the revelation of Jesus Christ. In sports, usually regardless of the sport, there is this concept called the athletic position. It doesn't matter if it's football, baseball, basketball, softball, volleyball, golf. There is some version. Now, there's similarities among the sports, and there are differences across the sports. But that athletic position, it's a matter of balance. It's a matter of readiness. It's a matter of protection. It's also the position from which the player can spring to action. I think, think, the opening of verse 13 points us to this athletic position. Stance and vision. There's two phrases in the opening of verse 13 that form that backdrop. The first phrase is, is preparing your minds for action. Now, maybe you're reading along with me in your Bible, maybe you see a footnote by that phrase, and you look down at the bottom of the page and see that footnote says that in the Greek, it actually says, girding up the loins of your mind. What in the world does that mean? We use the phrase girding up our loins, but do you know where it comes from? It was in the days of old when People would wear long, flowing robes. But they would need to tuck that robe into their belt so that they didn't trip over themselves while they were walking or doing their work. The Israelites, when they took the Passover meal, they were commanded by God to be girded for travel, to eat the meal with their robes tucked into their belt. What does this mean for us? And what does it mean to gird the loins of our minds? I believe it means to free our minds of distraction. And so what distracts you from setting your hope fully on the grace that is to be revealed? The day of Jesus Christ's coming. Is it the desire for worldly wealth and comfort? Is it the desire for the affirmation of the people? Who's grown bigger in your vision than God? Peter is calling us to an athletic position that is free of distraction. Free of those worldly distractions. But he's also calling us to one that is focused. He calls us to be sober-minded, self-controlled. I believe in context that this sober-mindedness is to be borne out in our preparation for the suffering that will come. So what hinders your focus? Could it be the numbing effect of media, social or otherwise? Could it be the numbing effect of, of substances that take our focus 
off of the hope that we have in Jesus and try to promise an easier way. That try to tell us that if Jesus really loved you, he would protect you from that suffering. Peter's calling us to this protective stance. But more than that, he's calling us to a forward-looking vision. To the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. There is a sense in which this grace will be completed. Our salvation will be completed in glory. Now, let me be careful. It's not as if the salvation is in doubt. It's a guarantee. But we will experience it fully. It will be fully complete when we receive all of the blessings of Jesus Christ bodily and sinlessly in His presence for all eternity. And brothers and sisters, that is our inheritance. Our inheritance is not a wad of cash. Our inheritance is not a tract of land. Our inheritance is Jesus Christ and our union in Him. Friends, this is our future hope that is our living hope. And it is more glorious than anything we could ask or imagine. Have you ever imagined a reunion that didn't go quite as you had planned? Maybe it was a family reunion. You were, you were gathering with some family members you hadn't been with. Maybe it was a date that didn't quite pan out the way you thought it would. When that happens, what do we do? We guard our hearts. And we resolve to ourselves that we will never let our hopes get up that high again we do that, what are we saying? We're taking a defensive stance and we're defining hope in a particular way. We're defining hope as an attitude that is to either be cultivated or restrained. But biblically, hope is not an attitude. It is a reality. A reality to be recognized. The reality of the grace that will be revealed. On that day, when we are reunited, or rather fully united, to Jesus Christ in glory. Not, not a revelation that might come. Not a 50-50 chance. But a grace that will be revealed. And as verse 9 describes, that is the outcome of our faith. It is so tempting for us to guard our hearts, because our hopes have so often been dashed. Those expectations have not been met. And so can I close by offering you a picture of a reunion that exceeds all anticipation? I believe it's a more accurate picture of the joy we will experience at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Scotty Smith is a pastor in Nashville, planted Christ Community Church there in Franklin, and he tells a story of when he was a young pastor officiating one of his first weddings. He's a bit nervous, one working through in his mind all the details of how this, this wedding ceremony is going to take place, but he was excited because he's standing up front with the groom, and we all know what a blessing it is when those doors at the back of the sanctuary open and the groom gets that first peek. And so Scotty talked about wanting to look back and 
in his eye, in the groom's eyes to see if he gets that first glimpse of his bride. But there was a problem, you see, when, when Scotty in his early wedding turns to look to the groom beside him, the groom was not there. Terror came over him as he imagined this groom running for the doors until he turned and saw to his delight that the groom had not run away, but he'd run to his bride. He saw her beauty. He couldn't wait for her to get down the aisle. What is the union or the reunion that you anticipate in glory? grace that will be revealed at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Are you guarding your hopes, your wishes, or are you looking to the groom who has made his bride beautiful? Friends, that day our joy will be made full in him. And that joy will exceed all expectations as he welcomes He runs to his bride. Friends, the certainty of that union is a hope that we can rest our lives upon. It is the hope of heaven. And let us live now in light of that glorious future. My praise be to God. Father, you are a big God. Your power is big. Your Your plan of redemption is big. The hope of glory is big and it is secure in Christ Jesus. And so I pray that you would root us in that unshakable hope. And change everything. Because of Christ. Do this we pray for your glory and our good. Amen.